Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, it's so good to see you guys today. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. That's where we'll be at here in just a bit. I hope you guys had a good Christmas. I hope you got your uh, Peloton bike or whatever it is that you really wanted. Uh, If you're a husband, I sincerely hope you did not get that for your wife. Apparently, that's like the unpardonable sin, or so I hear. So hopefully you dodged that bullet. Uh, We had a good Christmas. We traveled as usual. Our family's kind of from all over the Southeast, and so we did a little tour of the Southeast um, the past week or so. Uh, My Christmas was great, other than the fact that uh, on Christmas Eve, I started coming down with like a nasty sinus infection, which is why I sound a little bit like a chain smoker this morning. Um, And so what I did on Christmas while my wife and her family went to go visit their extended family is I stayed at the house all by myself for the entirety of Christmas Day, home alone. Uh, I was kind of hoping like people would try to break into the house. I saw a movie one time that I felt like could have been helpful in that scenario, but it just didn't happen. So you don't always get what you want, but that was my Christmas. Hope yours was good. I'm excited to be back with you this morning. Uh, We're actually going to kick off a new series uh, this morning, a new teaching series called Formation, uh, which believe it or not is not named after the Beyonce song. That would have been cool. I'm sorry that we didn't do that, but this is actually named after the idea of spiritual formation, which is just a fancy way of talking about the art and science of how we change as human beings. What we're going to talk about specifically this morning is how we change to become more like Jesus. And I would argue that the simpler form of that question, how we change in general over time as human beings, that is a question that nearly all of us want the answer to, right? Especially this time of year. So over the next week or so, some of us in the room will put into motion our plans for the new year to become healthier, more balanced, less stressed out, maybe even slimmed down versions of ourselves, right? Now, some of us are more into that than others, and some of us are more successful at it than others each year, but all of us tend to think about that sort of thing around this time of year. There's just something about turning over to a new calendar year that whispers to us, this is your shot at a fresh start, right? This is your chance at change. You know, I think it's so interesting for all of our culture's talk about how important it is to be yourself. This is the one time of year where almost nobody wants to be themselves, or at least not the current version of themselves. But I think all of that prompts the question, how do we actually change? How do we become different versions, improved versions of ourselves at all? That's the million dollar question. If we knew the answer to that question, I think all of us would be a little more successful at our attempts at change. And believe it or not, the Bible actually speaks to that very question on a number of occasions. The Bible is very interested in talking to us about how we change as human beings over time. And really, that is what we're going to dissect this morning. But first, 
I want us to talk a little bit about how most people believe that we change. And I don't think it's wrong, but I, I think it might be a little bit misguided or at least incomplete. An awful lot of people would say that we change through what we think. That if we want to become different types of people, if we want to be transformed as human beings, what we primarily need is to get the right information into our minds. This has been the predominant way of thinking about change in our country really ever since the Enlightenment, so 300 or so years ago. Since then, most everyone virtually assumes that this is true, which probably means that this is what you and I believe, whether we realize we believe it or not. Most of us believe that change happens primarily in our minds through the right thinking. If you want to become a healthier person, you read a blog post on dieting. If you want to become a more disciplined person, maybe you catch a self-help podcast on architecting your life or whatever the most recent fad is. If we want to become a neater, more tidy person around the house, we watch like an episode or two of Marie Kondo on Netflix, right? This is how people assume that we change, is that we just need to get the right information into our minds and then we'll change as a result because people believe that change primarily happens through what we think. That's the assumption that's often made. This line of thinking has its origins in writers like Rene Descartes who believe that human beings were at their core thinking beings, that the most important thing about us was what we think and that basically we're just brains on a stick, right? The only purpose of our body is to just carry our all-important minds around from place to place. This is what he believed. But you don't have to be a philosopher, know anything about him to think this way. This way of thinking about change has actually made its way all the way down to a popular level. As a case study, I will submit to you a different philosopher named R. Kelly for consideration. Yes, we are covering Descartes and R. Kelly in the same teaching. You're welcome for that. So maybe we shouldn't take life advice from R. Kelly. I get that. But I bring this up because I think it is the perfect embodiment of this line of thinking, this belief that we change through what we think. So here's a lyric from one of his songs. This will be a little bit of a throwback to the 90s. If I can see it, then I can do it. If I just believe it, there's nothing to it. I believe I can fly. That's from a song called I Believe I Can Fly. <laughs> now, aside from us 90s kids in the room having all kinds of flashbacks to the movie Space Jam, anybody remember that? Aside from that, this fantastic movie, really the, the most wonderful art of cinema that you will ever see in your life, I'm sure. But other than that, I want you to pay attention to the logic that R. Kelly used in that line, which is a sentence that has never been uttered before in a church service. Pay attention to the logic that R. Kelly used there. What he said is, if I can see it, meaning if I can envision something with my mind, then I can do it. If I believe it also with my mind, then there's nothing to it. So R. Kelly, even though he maybe wasn't, you know, steeped in the writings of Rene Descartes, he, he also believes that we change through what we think. That if we just set our mind to something, if we get the right information, the right thinking into our minds, that we will change as a result. And we believe that. Most of us believe that down to our core, or at least we hear it a dozen different ways in our culture put off to us in a million different ways. Now, to add to that, 
we have very much adopted this philosophy of change within the church. We have also assumed that the way people are going to change and become more like Jesus is through how or what they think. We've concluded that the best way to help people grow is through simple information transfer, right? This is why churches are often built around sermons and Bible studies and Sunday school classes. Because we believe if we can just get the right thinking about God into people's minds, then they will change magically as a result. So we need to give more, people more information about God. Now, this philosophy about change, that we change through what we think, it's not outright wrong. It, it's not incorrect. How we think is an important component in how we change. Even passages like Romans 12 say that, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind, right? So it's not that this is wrong, but I think it would be a mistake to believe that we change only through what we think. It's not just through what we think. Simply put, information alone is not sufficient to change a person. And I think if we stop to think about it, we actually know this. So how many of us, you don't have to raise your hands for this because it might be embarrassing for some of us, but how many of us at some point in our life have thought to ourselves, I need to be a healthier person. I need to eat more healthy and then proceeded to absolutely not eat healthier at all. Yep. Uh, how many of us have thought to ourselves, you know what? I really need a budget. I really should start paying attention to what I spend. I need to make and keep up with a budget and then proceeded to not even start making a budget at all. Okay, so what we're saying there is that we had the right thinking we had the right information in our minds, and yet it did not lead to change in any substantial way. That's because information does not inherently lead to transformation. And on a much more serious note, when it comes to spiritual transformation specifically, how many of us have known someone who seemed to have all sorts of right thinking about God? who knew everything there was to know about God and theology and the kingdom of God and all of that, people that could teach a graduate-level theology class, and yet their life did not look remotely like Jesus. So what we're saying there is that information, right thinking in our minds, does not inherently lead to change, not in any obvious way, at least. So it would seem, then, that we actually need something more than right thinking in order to change. It would seem that we need something more than the right information in our heads in order to become more like Jesus. So what is it that we need exactly? I think that is where Matthew 7 comes in precisely. So with all that in mind, let's take a look at our passage that we just heard read, starting in verse 24. Just FYI, I'm going to read from the NIV today. I know that's not the Bibles that we have underneath the seats. I just think it does a little bit better job with this passage. So feel free to click over to that one or just follow along on the screen. This is Matthew 7, starting in 24. Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had put its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice 
is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Okay, so in this passage, Jesus is drawing out a contrast between two different types of people. One person who hears what Jesus says and puts it into practice as a result, and another person who only hears what Jesus says and does not put it into practice. That's the contrast that he sets up. Now, notice that the contrast here is not between a person who hears the things that Jesus says and a person who doesn't hear the things that Jesus says. That's important, but that's not the emphasis that Jesus places here. It's not those who possess the right information about God and people who don't possess that information. What he emphasizes is the difference between those who hear and practice and those who only hear. That's the two categories that he gives us, which means that apparently to Jesus, information alone is not sufficient to change people. Because otherwise, both of these men in the story would have been in good shape, right? Jesus is saying that it is not enough to just think a certain way about the gospel or the kingdom of God or about God himself. That's a great place to start, but in and of itself, it will not lead to change in your life. It will not lead to lasting, noticeable transformation at all. Jesus says what will change you is knowing those things about God and then putting them into practice as a result. To actually change, it's not enough to just know things. You have to do something with what you know. This is all over the Bible. It's in places like James 1. It's all over the Gospels as Jesus talks about what it means to follow him. That in order to change, in order to become different as a result of who Jesus is, you actually have to do something with what you know. For example, if you believe that God is sovereign, if you believe that he runs things in the universe, then you should be praying to him on a very regular basis because he is the one who is, in fact, sovereign. That would make sense based on what you know, right? If you believe that we are called to love people, that people are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect, then that should impact the way that you treat people on a regular basis. If you, if you believe that God is smarter than you, that there's wisdom to be found from God himself and through the scriptures, well, then that means that you should be regularly dwelling on and meditating on the words in the scriptures because that's where the wisdom comes from. If you believe that you are sinful, if you believe that sin is a barrier between you and God, then that should mean you are regularly confessing that sin to God and to others. If all you have is knowledge of those things and not practice, it's going to make very little difference in your life. What we need is not just to know those things, but to practice what we know. To take those things that we know about God and actually turn them into regular habits in our life. Put another way, a central piece of how we change is through our habits. Through our habits. 
the things that we do over and over and over again, those are, to use Jesus' language in Matthew chapter 7, the things that we practice. That's what practice means, right? Is that you do something over and over and over again. A guy by the name of James K.A. Smith wrote a fantastic book a few years ago about all of this called You Are What You Love. I would highly recommend that book if you're wanting to dive into this more. But it's all about how our habits are a huge part of who we eventually become as followers of Jesus. In that book, he famously describes this whole process, what we're talking about this morning, with this simple saying. And I think it sums it up really well. He says, the things we do, do things to us. The things we do, do things to us. There is a direct connection between repetition, things that we do over and over again, and formation, who we eventually become as a result. We become the people we are largely based on the things that we do over and over and over again. Now, something important for you to know about all of this is that this is happening in your life regardless of whether you realize it's happening or not. You are always changing in some direction. The question is, in what direction are you changing? It happens even in the small things. So, for instance, uh, a couple months ago, uh, my wife and I began watching from the very beginning the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Anybody a fan of Brooklyn Nine-Nine in the room? fantastic show. I, I didn't want to give it a shot at first, and now I'm like, I'm, I'm so into it. It's such a great show. So what we would do is uh, nearly every single night after we would get both kids to bed, which is an exhausting process if you've never participated in that, it's basically like imagine running a marathon for an hour while having little humans scream in your face. That's what bedtime is like. And so at the end of that process, we'd both be exhausted, and we would go get some snacks from the kitchen, which usually consisted of like potato chips and really sugary cereal, right? And we would go in our room and we would pull up Brooklyn Nine-Nine and we would watch like an episode or two or seven of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> and so we started doing this nearly every night after we would put the kids to bed. And here's the thing. Here's what I started noticing that was happening in us as a result of that. After a week or two of forming that habit and participating in that habit nearly every night, all of a sudden, it was like we started having this gravitational pull towards Brooklyn Nine-Nine when the kids went to bed. Like it began to become so difficult to imagine doing anything at all with that time other than watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Like we would need to do our budget or like pick up around the house or do any number of things that like normal adult humans do uh, and need to do. But instead, it was like all we could think about doing was watching an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So what had happened is that we had set into motion a habit that had turned us into certain types of people as a result. Our habit had actually changed and formed and created a love, a draw in us towards this show. Do you see how that works? And that is what habits do, all types of habits. There are actually scientific reasons for this. When we do something a certain number of times in a row, we actually form these like neural pathways in our brain. It's all above my pay grade, but basically this is how addiction works. Like serious addiction, but also micro addictions like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? This is how our brains work. When we do something a certain number of times in a row, it becomes difficult for us to imagine doing anything except that one thing again. So practically speaking, if every morning you start off the day 
by hitting the snooze button on your alarm 14 times before you go anywhere or do anything. You are going to become the type of person that needs to hit the snooze button 14 times before you go do anything. If you, are the ty- if you start every single morning by getting up and spending 15 minutes just mindlessly scrolling through Instagram on your phone, you are going to become the type of person that needs to get up every morning and spend 15 minutes scrolling through Instagram before you do anything. Your habits actually form and shape the things that you care about. Your habits turn you into certain types of people as a result. So we like to think that our habits are prompted by the things that we love. So we say things like, well, I'm lazy and that's why I watch so much TV, right? And that may be true to a certain extent, but what I'm saying is it is also every bit as true the other way around, that we are lazy because we watch so much TV. By spending a certain amount of time every single day doing nothing but watching TV, we are actually training ourselves to love laziness. I'm not saying TV is wrong. I'm just saying be aware of what it's doing to your heart when you watch it. Our habits form us into certain types of people. The things we do, do things to us. So, and here's where this becomes immensely practical for followers of Jesus in the room. If we want to become the type of people who look more like Jesus in two, five, 10, 25 years from now, if we want to become the type of people who are formed more and more into the image of Jesus, our habits are a massive part of how we will get there. Or to use Jesus' language, our practice, the things that we practice, are a central, non-optional part of how we will get there. If you will change your habits, you will change as a result. If you will not change your habits, you will not change much at all. Now, that being said, that's the big idea. Let me just pause for a second and speak to a concern that some of us in the room might have when it comes to all of this. For those of you that have been around church for very long, especially healthy churches, it's, it's possible that you may begin to get a little bit nervous when we talk about all this stuff like this. Because to you, all this talk about habits and practice and what we do sounds a lot to you like religion or what's called works in the Bible, or maybe you've heard it referred to as legalism. It sounds to you like we're advocating for what is commonly called works in the Bible. In your mind, it sounds like we're talking a lot about what we do to grow and not talking a lot about what God does to change us and grow us. And I want you to know that I hear that concern. I really do. In fact, I feel it in me, right? When we start talking about stuff like this, I feel that objection rising up in me as well. And so on that note, let me just kind of translate something to you that has been said to me that I found super helpful in all of this. I want you to know that in saying that we change through our habits, I am not trying to say that God isn't ultimately the one who changes us. That's not what I'm trying to say. By saying that our habits change us, I'm not trying to say that the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. I'm not trying to say that God's grace doesn't change us. Rather, I'm trying to say that our habits are one very important means by which the Holy Spirit changes us. 
They're one very important avenue that God's grace flows to in our lives in order to form us into certain types of people. And just to show you, this is an out of step with the idea of transforming grace in the Bible. Take a look with me at this from Galatians chapter six. We'll put it on the screen. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. So here we have the Apostle Paul in the Bible, who is a huge fan of grace, by the way, if you've never read his writings, huge fan of grace, huge proponent of grace, huge opponent of works or legalism. But in this passage, what Paul says is that to think that you can change without changing your habits, in his language, what you sow, what you sow over and over again in your life, to think that you can change without changing those things would be like mocking God. It would be like thinking that as a lazy teenager that you could show up to work, do absolutely nothing the entire week except be on your phone and then hold out your hand for a paycheck. It says if you think you can change, if you're asking God to change you without being willing to put forth any effort in changing your habits, he says that's like mocking God because that's not how change works. Instead, he says, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the spirit, you reap from the spirit. If you sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh. Another way of putting that is that our habits, for better or worse, shape who we eventually become. I think Dallas Willard is actually really helpful on this as well. He famously said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. What we all want to guard against as followers of Jesus is an attitude of earning, right, with God. We want to guard against the mindset that God's acceptance of us is dependent upon our efforts, against the mindset that we have to earn and maintain God's acceptance of us, God's love for us. And so hear me say loud and clear that God's love and acceptance of you, if you are in Christ, has nothing to do with what you do or do not do. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus went to the cross to secure once and for all God's love and acceptance of us. And so your actions have nothing to do with that. Your actions do not establish or maintain God's affections for you. But that doesn't mean that your actions don't matter when it comes to your spiritual maturity. It doesn't mean that your actions don't matter at all. It just means they don't determine God's love for you. If you want to grow and become more like Jesus, a lot of it will need to happen through your effort. A lot of it is going to need to happen through your habits, through what you practice. And there's one more thing I want you to notice about that Galatians 6 passage. If we can just throw that back up on the screen real quick. In that passage, notice that it actually presented two different options, sowing to the spirit and sowing to the flesh. Another way of putting that is that your habits are always transforming you into certain types of people, good or bad. We are always being changed by our habits. The only question is in what direction are we currently changing? If we find ourselves caring very little about the things of God, 
It is because the habits that we have set up in our life have got us to that point. If we currently find ourselves caring very little about the people around us, about living in deep, meaningful relationship with other followers of Jesus, it's because the habits in our life up to this point have formed us into those types of people. If we currently find ourselves caring very little about fighting against sin in our everyday life, it's because our habits have gotten us there. To use business terminology, you guys may have heard this expression before, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're currently getting, right? So if you're unhappy with who you currently are as a follower of Jesus, especially as it relates to the things of God, then it's worth asking the question, what habits got me here? And what habits could I be participating in instead? And that is precisely what we want to zoom in on during this series. How our habits, the things that we practice on a regular basis, make us more and more like Jesus. We want to learn the art and science of how we change. So each year, at the beginning of the calendar year specifically, we focus on one particular habit or practice that helps us become more like Jesus. Over the years, Christians have often referred to these as spiritual disciplines. Each year, we pick one spiritual discipline or one practice or habit that over the long haul, we think helps us become more like Jesus. And this year, we're going to focus on the practice specifically of reading and studying the Bible. We'll be looking at how the Holy Spirit uses the Bible, these scriptures, to form us as human beings. Now, most likely, we are all over the map in this room when it comes to our personal relationship with the Bible and interaction with the Bible. For a lot of us, no doubt, the Bible is probably a very central piece of our lives. We spend all kinds of time and effort learning how to read and study and meditate on the scriptures. Maybe we spend enormous amounts of time in our everyday life doing that. For others of us, uh, it might be a little more inconsistent. Maybe we've had seasons in our life where we've been really intentional about spending regular time in the Bible, and then there's been other seasons where life got crazy or life got difficult or whatever it was, and time in the Bible just sort of fell off the map for some period of time. And then for others of us still, even followers of Jesus in the room, it might be that time in the Bible is pretty much a non-starter for us. Like maybe we've tried it a time or two, but if we're honest, we don't really have a regular relationship with the Bible at all. Maybe for us, we, we've tried before and it just seemed confusing and so we just kind of bailed on it. And so maybe for some of us, our primary interaction with the Bible is what we're doing right now, is here on Sundays. And so wherever you're at, I want you to know that this is a safe place to be honest about where you're at. And wherever you're at, I want you to know that we have designed this series to help regardless of where you currently are. We want to move the needle a little bit for all of us and get us to fall more in love with spending time in the scriptures on a regular basis. Um, my own relationship with the Bible is a really interesting one. Uh, so I've mentioned before on Sundays that I grew up in a very large, very Baptist church um, for most of my life. And as far as I know, that church had a really healthy, really high view of the Bible. 
And I knew that because they would regularly say things from stage like, here at our church, we love the Bible. Here at our church, we read the Bible. We believe the Bible. And that was all well and good when they would say that. The only problem for me personally in that church is that those things weren't true of me yet. And I would imagine for a lot of other people there, it wasn't true for them either. And it didn't seem like there was a lot of help available for people that were in that place. Does that make sense? So they they kept saying, hey, you should read the Bible, but there wasn't really any instruction on how to do that or where even to start if that wasn't where you were currently at. There was a lot of talk about loving the Bible, but not a lot of help for you if you weren't currently in that same spot with it. And if I had to guess, some of us in the room have had a similar experience when it comes to following Jesus. Maybe we know that we are supposed to read the Bible. We know that we are supposed to love the Bible, but that's just not where we're currently at, and we don't really know how to get there. And nobody's really taken the time to help us get there either. Maybe we don't even know where to start in that process at all. And so what we're going to try to do in this series is give you a roadmap on how to get there. Our goal is not just to get all of us reading the Bible, but also understanding what we read and loving what we read in the Bible. And maybe that to you sounds like a little bit of a pipe dream based on where you're currently at, but I truly believe by the end of these six weeks, we can get you closer to that reality. Through what we're talking about on Sundays, through what we talk about the next five weeks, and unpacking what the Bible is, I think we can grow to love it and understand it and love reading it on a regular basis. But in light of our conversation today, it seems like it would be ill-advised to just talk about the Bible and talk about reading the Bible, but not actually form a habit of reading it, right? If we do that, we are the guy who built his house on the sand. So what we're doing to accompany this series is that we've actually put together some resources to help you read through the Bible this year. I'm going to talk a little bit about all of those details at the end of the service during the announcements. But we've actually set up some help for you to put into practice reading the Bible on a regular basis. But if I can, before we're done with this time, I just want to finish by talking about some objections, some pushbacks in us that maybe we have when I say that. When I say, hey, we're all gonna read through the Bible together this year in 2020, maybe for you, you're thinking, yeah, I I just don't think that's gonna work and there are some objections and pushbacks and hesitancies in you. So I just wanna address three of those really quickly before we're done. First, first pushback I think we have to reading the Bible is that I just don't have time. I just don't have time. Some of us just feel like there's no way we could make time to do that in our daily rhythms, at least not with any type of frequency. Life just feels too full for us to block out regular time to spend in the Bible. Now, first off, let me say, if that's you, I feel you, okay? I really do. Most of you guys know that we have two kids, uh, age seven months and four years old. So there are a lot of days where I don't even feel like I have time to think or eat, much less read the Bible. Like, I, I get it if you feel like your life is too full to do that. If that's you, I can identify with you. I have all kinds of sympathy for you. But second, as someone with all kinds of sympathy for you, let me say that we all probably do have time to read the Bible. 
The most recent statistics I found online said that the average American watches just under four hours of TV every day. The average adult is on their phone just under three hours a day. So really, I don't even know when we're working or watching our kids, to be honest. Like, I I don't know when the real stuff is happening, but I know that a lot of us have more free time than we think we have. And if we were to put our phone on Do Not Disturb for a little bit during the day, I think we'd be surprised at how much free time we actually have to do things like read the Bible. So in all likelihood, you actually have more time than you think you do. And even if you buck the trend on those stats, right? Like even if you're like, I don't watch any TV and I have an old school flip phone, I don't even have a smartphone at all, which that probably applies to like five of us in this room. But even if that's you and you're going, no, I don't do any of that stuff, chances are you still have time during the day to spend time reading the Bible or you can create time. No matter how hectic your life is, I would bet that we actually have more time than we think. And if you don't feel like that's true, if you're literally like, no, I I really don't know when in my day I would read the Bible, come talk to me. Uh, It is that important to me as your pastor that you learn how to spend time reading the Bible. So if you just don't think you have time at all, I will get coffee with you this week and we will look at your schedule and we'll figure out how to make time for you to spend time in the Bible. If we can help at all, we want to do that. If Life Group can help at all, we want to do that. But I think in reality, we all actually have time to read the Bible. I realized this the other day, for me personally, uh, when I was feeding our daughter. Um, So I was sitting there in the recliner, uh, I was feeding her her bottle, and as I was doing that, I was like feeding her with one hand and scrolling through Instagram with my other hand. And I was like, you know what, if I can scroll through Instagram while I feed her, I can probably read the Bible while I feed her, right? I'm not saying that's like optimal time for reading and studying the Bible, but if that's the only time you've got, it sure does beat not reading it at all, right? So I think we all actually have more time than we think if we were completely honest about it. Second pushback, some of us might think, I don't know how. I don't know how to read the Bible. For others of us, maybe we have time, maybe we want to read the Bible, and we just feel so incredibly lost as to where to start with it all. Maybe the whole thing just feels intimidating in the first place, or every time we start trying to read the Bible, we just get so lost so fast that we just are inclined to give up. And that's understandable. Listen, this book right here, especially parts of it, are not easy to read. I'll be the first to tell you that. There are parts of it that are not easy to read, not easy to understand. So what we want to do is spend this entire series, the next six weeks, helping you learn how to read and study and understand what you read in the Bible. Our goal is that by the end of these six weeks, your confidence level would increase significantly when it comes to finding your way around the scriptures. We've got all sorts of ways that we're going to do that that I'll tell you about in just a little bit. But if you will commit to being around for the next six weeks and catching the podcast for the weeks that you miss, I truly believe that we can get you in a much better place when it comes to reading and understanding the Bible. And we've got some resources to help with all of that that I'll tell you about soon. And then one more, thanks for your patience this morning, last objection or pushback that I think we have when it comes to reading through the Bible on a regular basis is this one, I don't want to. I don't want to. I think if some of us were completely honest, this is the one underneath all the other excuses, right? 
The problem is that some of us don't really want to read the Bible. Maybe we've tried to read it before and we just don't feel like we've gotten anything out of it as a result. We didn't enjoy it. And so maybe we're thinking, well, I don't want to be legalistic. I mean, God wouldn't want me to do it if my heart's not in it. So maybe I should just wait until I feel like reading the Bible and then I'll do it. Here's the problem with that mindset, though. That assumes that we have no control whatsoever over our desires. It assumes that we haven't gotten ourselves to the place where we're currently at with the Bible. And if you remember from James K.A. Smith earlier, that's not entirely true. The truth is that however little you currently care about the Bible, you actually kind of got yourself there. So if you currently don't want to read the Bible, it probably has something to do with the habits in your life turning you into that kind of person, which is bad news, but if you think about it, it's also good news because it means you can get yourself to a better place when it comes to loving and appreciating the Bible. So if you're a follower of Jesus in the room and you're thinking, I don't really want to read the Bible, wouldn't it be better for us to say, I'm going to choose to read the Bible because I know it's good for me, even when I don't inherently want to do it, and I'm going to pray that as I do that, the Holy Spirit uses that process to turn me into the type of person that wants to read the Bible? Wouldn't that be a much healthier response to this pushback? And my bet is that the Holy Spirit will do just that. If you participate in reading the Bible, even when you don't feel like it, despite not feeling like you're getting something out of it every single time that you open its pages, you might just find that the Holy Spirit uses that process to turn you into the type of person that loves the scriptures, that longs for time in the Bible on a regular basis. But chances are he's going to use your habits to do that. So that's our prayer for this series. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thanks for um, who you are. Thanks for how utterly unique um, you are. And thanks for your love for us as your people. God, thank you for giving us um, the scriptures so that we might um, learn and grow in our understanding of who you are. And God, we, uh, we want to confess, I want to confess that uh, I don't always long to do that. I don't always want to spend time in the scriptures discovering who you are and discovering your affections for me and for your people and your purposes for the world. But God, I want to ask that you would, you would do that in me, that you would continue to do that in all of us, that you would make us into the types of people who love you and because of that, love your words to us in the Bible. 
God, would you help us um, identify the habits that have turned us into the type of people that don't desire that. And God, would you help us to identify what habits you want us to participate in, God, to sow to the Spirit, as Paul says. That we would point our habits and our practice in a specific direction that would make us more and more like you. And God, we want to ask that you would just breathe on that process, that you would bring it all to life, and that you would um, you would form us more and more into the image of your Son. God, we ask for your help. We need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.